In the book of Revelation, there are seven churches which are addressed, and so many times we come to this mysterious book and people take all kinds of different angles as they look at it, and today we're going to start a series where we examine these seven churches and wonder how in the world do these apply to our lives? Do we relate to them in what way or how and what's kind of the history about them and what should we learn as we read this apocalyptic book? So thank you for joining us here at Kingdom of the Logos. We are a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure produced by Clergy in the Church of the Nazarene. And I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor, and there are quite a few others with me today here in Cord Purgatory. I'm Pastor Amanda Sparrow. Pastor Anthony Alegria. And I'm Pastor Mike Proctor. And really, I'm not going to lie, I wanted to title this, you know, The Churches of the Apocalypse. And kind of come in and you have the doom and gloom sounding it, because people hear that word apocalypse, they always think, you know, we're about to watch Mad Max or I Am Legend <laughs> or something like that. But the truth is, apocalypse, apocalypto, revelation, these words, they all mean to simply reveal. It is a, a revelation. I know that's kind of circular logic, but it is. And when we come to this book, people, they do, they have a lot of different crazy takes on it. You get some people who go way off the deep end, and they're like, if this politician says that, they've Christ is going to come, and then you can't tell exactly what their angle is, because sometimes people talk about Christ returning as a bad thing, and other times they look at it as a good thing, but... Really confusing things happen when people take this book and go off the deep end. But there are a lot of us who come to it with serious questions, and we look at it and we want to be good, studious Christians, and we want to be able to look at this and walk away with something uh, valuable. So today we're going to start a study, and we're going to go through these seven churches. And we're going to start with the Church of Ephesus today, and we're going to ask some questions about it. And hopefully we'll all walk away from here learning something new and also being able to be adults who examine ourselves and we look critically at our own faith and make sure we are drawing closer and closer to Christ, that the Holy Spirit really is sanctifying us, and we're not just being idolaters who live like our idols and ourselves want us to live. So, without any further hesitation, let's read our scripture and find out what we're looking at. So, Anthony, if you would, begin us this day by reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evil do doers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my sake my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear Listen to what the Holy Spirit says to its churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. All right, so we've read this scripture. And now we've got serious questions that if we're critical thinkers, we come to this and we want to say, you know, I am not a aggregation of people. If anyone is multiple people, then we need to have a talk. Please send me a message. Um, but we look at ourselves and we say, well, we're an individual that's part of the church. So we look at this 
and it's being written to address an entire church. So is it relevant to an individual or is it just relevant to us when we're all assembled together? Well, the truth is there are many things which apply both to us on the individual level and the collective level. Whenever we start to say, well, that only matters about the group and the people over there, then we start to lose sight of the importance of us being well-developed people who are following Christ. And also, whenever we get to the point where we say it's all about me and we forget our relationship with the larger church, then we also kind of get in bad territory. So we look at this and we find that this is not just looking at a single moment in time. This is something which has been found throughout history. And yes, there is a church in Ephesus. And a lot of people look at this and will say, is this a church in the future? Is this a real historical church? There's real historical churches in Ephesus. <laughs> we'll, we'll go ahead and say that. But... I also want us to keep in mind that sin really has not changed that much. We look throughout our most ancient ancestors. People have basically been committing the same sins. They might have new toys to commit sin with. They might have new mediums, new tools for sin. But sin has basically been with us for a very, very long time. And with that being said, we can still look at this church and apply it to our life. So let's get right into this. Pastor Amanda, start us out with what they are doing right. If we can just take a first glimpse into what is going well with this church. Yeah. So I think verse two pretty much starts us off right immediately. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. So this is what they are obviously doing correct in the church. And they actually have a lot of kind of uh, a John and really Christ speaking through John in this revelation has a lot of good to say for this church in particular in um, it doesn't specify what they're toiling or what they're enduring through or what works they're doing. Um, but I think this is quite, it's a great, great way to start it off because we do know um, some churches do not get a glowing <laughs> recommendation either in John's revelation or in Paul's letters. Uh, sometimes there, there's not too much thanks to be given. But this church here in Ephesus, um, whatever they are doing and whatever is happening either kind of against them or towards them, they are enduring for the sake of the the cross and so they are there to be praised for that kind of uh integrity that is happening here you know sometimes just basic endurance that doesn't always get a name you know the unspoken prayer requests we have the things that are just run of the mill those are sometimes the most difficult things to endure so it is kind of nice that it opens up with this expression of gratitude mm -hmm. and again remind me pastor amanda who is speaking here to this church well, it is, I think, the person, it says uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. So the, it is kind of Christ that is speaking to John in this revelation. So to answer your question, John is writing the letter to the church in Ephesus, um, or this apocalypse to the church in Ephesus and other churches. But really, it is uh, Christ that is speaking to John. Yeah, so it gets tricky quick. <laughs> and you'll find all sorts of articles online where they say, did you say John wrote this book? You are wrong. It was Christ Jesus. Or, or which John is it? Is yeah, it, which John? Yeah, you get all John kinds of John the Beloved, things. John the, uh, yeah, yeah. But Christ is revealing this. Mm -hmm. So this is essentially like getting a, a letter right from Christ. Again, yes, you've got John and then the, the angel, the messenger here. So you've got a couple of layers. But this is a, a direct insight from God on what they're doing. And to have Christ express gratitude in this is, isn't good. So endurance is important. Dad, moving on a little bit further here, and I guess I should call you Pastor Mike, but I think most people have, have figured this out that you're um, my dad. But Pastor Mike, we find that they actually go a little bit further in the gratitude that is expressed there. They're doing something else aside from patient endurance, though that's good. But they have another thing to, 
to, to be praised here, and that's something about testing those who have claimed to have authority in the church. But what do we find there? Can you talk with us a little bit about this with the church there in Ephesus? Well, uh, you know, they are testing the those apostles. Um, first of all, let's look at Ephesus. It has some big names there. You have uh, Paul, John, of course, uh, Priscilla, Aquila, Timothy. Uh, if, if you even look... Uh, Past uh, this time frame, we see Polycarp and Irenaeus, uh, some of the church uh, leaders in the in the you know right there in the early church. Uh, but you also uh, will see that Ephesus is that port city. We see Paul there uh, when the uh, you know Judas exorcist the seven sons of Sceva. So there's this whole port city with everything you can think of going on probably. Uh, even sorcery and uh, you know magic, uh, but at the end of the day, there is a great gathering. It's it's a major city, so you're going to have a lot of uh, different different ones coming. And I think it's very pertinent to us today because uh, you know what what are they testing? There's so much to be tested. There is it of the gospel or is it not? Yeah, and to your point. They're not getting praised because they had big names associated with them. Right. This this message doesn't say, hey, y'all are doing great. Y'all had so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. But instead, they're saying you tested people who claim to have authority in the church, but they, they weren't acting in good faith. And to your point, you talked about there being people practicing sorcery, exorcisms. What happened in that? If we, we go and we look at somewhere like the, the book of Acts with that story of the seven sons of Sceva, what, what happened there with, with those things that were going on that were wicked? Well, obviously, they, they were having some degree of success, the seven sons of Sceva. They did not know Christ. Um, they did not, you know, they're using uh, Jesus' name, using Paul's name. And, of course, the, the demon there attacks him, uh, this man. He, he is beaten up, stripped naked, runs out, you know, naked. We do not know the outcome of what happens to him, but it, it is obvious that there is a lot of magic going on and sorcery in that, in that city. Well, what, what becomes of the magic and sorcery in that story that you're referencing? Well, yeah, do they, you know, do they, they get together at the end and say, we're going to open up a new library of sorcery books, or what, what do they do with all that? Well, and, and, well, I think God uses that, and I think with uh, that going on and with Paul there and the testimony and Christ. Uh, you know, presence there with Paul. There's tremendous amount of books and spells burnt. Burnt, uh, yes. Yeah, that, so there was a burning. That that is what I was looking for. At the end of that, they burn it. Mm -hmm. So these people, they have a reputation when there is something which is truly not of God. Again, this is not some false witch hunt or something like that where people are just acting out of bad faith on that side of things. But this is where there's actually wicked things going on. And they get it all together and say, we're getting it out. Get it out. Get it out. So they have a reputation for doing that. And that Absolutely. That's a, a really, really good thing which is going on here. Now, as we came to this scripture, you found that word in there, um, Nicolaitans, as, as Anthony had, had read earlier. Now, you might look at this and say, well, who in the world are these people? We don't have a lot of information on but we do know some about them. And now, the name Nicolaitan, it comes from the name Nicholas. But when you hear Nicholas and saints and things like that, you might think of the St. Nicholas we associate with Christmas time. This is not the same Nicholas. This guy, Nicholas, he is a early deacon in the church from Jerusalem. And this guy's a heretic. 
He doesn't really start off as a heretic, as a lot of times that happens. People don't start off as heretics, and then one day it kind of a thing clicks in their brain, and they're like, you know what? There is no God the Father. There is no, you know, this element of the gospel, whatever it may be. But this guy, Nicholas, he's in Jerusalem, and he says, you know, these people that have a more ascetic life, they, they have chastity, and he said, you know, that really takes people close to God. And even though I'm married, I'm going to live a life of chastity. He tries to do this for a while, and then he finds it. It's not so easy to do, and so he goes from being someone advocating for chastity and, again, trying to be um, family-friendly here. He says, you know, how about fornication all the time? If you want to really know God, then you just got to fornicate all the time. And he kind of looks at his people and is like, fornication for you, fornication for you, fornication everywhere. And he really starts a bit of a standard heresy. It's really not that unique, not that original. But that is early on, right after Christ ascends. But down the road, we have these people in Ephesus, the Nicolaitans, and their name is associated with this Nicholas that was in Jerusalem. Now, there's been some years that have passed, so we don't know the exact connection. We don't know a lot what these people are doing, but we know they're fornicators. That's a big, big part of their thing. They like the whole idolatry of these pagan gods. You do the whole pagan fornication, and they are Gnostics, and they look at the world, and if you don't know what Gnostic means, it means there's hidden knowledge out there. You know, some people are special. They have special connection to the divine powers. They're unique. They can say the right words and conjure things up, and they have some knowledge that no one else can have. Well, these Nicolaitans there in Ephesus, they're kind of dualists. They look at good and evil being equal and they kind of fight with one another they've kind of got this weird thing going on they're like well if we fornicate the right way we'll get some insight into the thoughts of the devil and stuff like that so it's some pretty strange stuff again nothing new people still kind of do this stuff even though they may not think they're doing it may not articulate it the way the Nicolaitans may but that's what's going on here and on that side tangent let's bring back to some of the language that we find in the scripture Anthony, we find at the end this word conquer. And in that last verse you read, it says, Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Anthony, what does this word conquer really mean? Is it a noun, a verb? What does this word really mean? Is it a strong word, a soft word? Well, um... Basically, it is a participle, uh, Nikontai, is what it is. It comes from Nike, Victory, and it's... Which is where the shoes get their name, yes? Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> it must be said. It must be said. It is a good way to remember it. But um, in any case, so uh, Nikontai, very, very basic word. There's not a whole lot um, to explore here. It's very straightforward. Uh, it is... Uh, you know, conqueror, one who conquers. It can be one who has victory. It can be one who prevails, one who overcomes. And there's different settings this could be used in. It could be used in warfare. It can be used in a um, lawsuit. It can be used in uh, an internal victory or anything like that. And so the ways to interpret this here, there's a couple. Um, there's definitely a theology where... Uh, we're to die to the old self and to um, finish the race strong and that sort of thing. So that would be more of an individual conquering. But also in the New Testament, there's a very clear idea of the kingdom of God conquering the world in Christ and conquering 
death and evil and tragedy in Christ. And so to conquer in the name of Christ would mean to conquer the world in the way that Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection conquered the world. And so we can see this in many different ways, and especially in the martyrs, which I will let Dylan uh, well, explain. To, to the question before we kind of get to the martyrs, whenever we hear this word, so much of modern Christian culture has watered things down where we think conquering means we all got together and we held hands and we were in our little small circle and we shared our feelings and that means we conquered our feelings. Like we, we have this going and I hope the camera's only on me <laughs> at this point. But we, we find that this kind of goes on in the church and it really gets frustrating because we have reduced the victories and the conquering that have gone on in the church that have gone on through the work of Christ down to something which is really passive. And we forget that there is a very mature model given to us. Jesus does not come along and just say, well, I'm going to turn a blind eye to that. No, there are times when one turns over the tables in the temple. There are times when one says, get behind me, Satan. There are also times when you come to someone who is blind and you 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 look to meet them and you, you find something like John with a blind man, he is questioned and ultimately says, I was blind, but now I see. He's functioning as a disciple. You take someone who is the least expected people of society and they're, they're put to where they're the center of attention. Jesus comes to people and is an, an adult. He's mature. He deals with the devil out in the wilderness. He doesn't argue with him. And then there are other times where he'll sit down with the disciples and he'll give them a lengthy discourse. He'll meet someone like Nicodemus at night and give them a long exchange. And other times he's very brief and short with people when they're not really genuine. We have to understand that there is a fully developed kingdom at work here. It is a kingdom that is going to bring victory. It is going to do conquering. It's not going to advance sin. It is going to advance the holiness of God. Pastor Mike. Well, you know, um, the Nicolaitans uh, are associated with uh, hedonism and, you know, just pleasure. And so I think, uh, you know, pleasure to this day and age is something that a lot of people seek. But the victory that the kingdom of God has is not just for the individual, say, as in celebrate recovery, whatever, or whatever, but people are really addicted to all kinds of feel good immediately things. But the sure. kingdom of God is different. It has something eternal and long term. As Pastor Amanda said earlier in the pre discussion uh, before we went on air, that, you know, it, it says that God hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans uh, and not necessarily the people. And so when we put this in context of the victory that's being won, it's not just a victory of the individual coming out of those addictions or whatever is holding them captive in life, but it is the victory of the church and that victory is won in Christ Jesus, which is our first love. And, and um, you know, I think the first love is when we are baptized, whether it be physically the ritual or baptized of the Holy Spirit. When it comes, we are born again, fresh and new. And, and God is the best terminology we can come, through, come with that is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But the parent loves us so much that all we know to do is, is love the parent. And we should um, never depart from that first love. Yeah. And and that's the thing, you know, our, our, our parents, uh, as we grow and we mature, we learn to invest in things that are not just hedonism, instant gratification, yeah. but long-term, um, you know, efforts. Yeah, and 
Well, we'll just move on. I'm, I'm going to come back to the martyrs here towards the end. We'll, we'll get to some more things for time purposes, and then I'll come back to that. <laughs> uh, but a short tease for that is the church finds victory when the church is being the church. It, it's not Amen. external oppression that usually slows down the church. It's usually internal division that, that slows Absolutely. down the work of the kingdom. And we'll get to that with the martyrs more, more down the road. So we, we see that this conquering is going on and we see good things going on. We get good language. You hear things like that tree there with the, the fruit of life, the tree of life. But there are also some things going on wrong. And now that we've had our, our time of blessing and praise, <laughs> now we got to get into the, the correction stage. Pastor Amanda, what is it that they are doing wrong? All right, so it says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had, you had at first. Um, and this is quite interesting, and I know you've kind of, we were talking and discussing about it, and I was trying to find a, a better answer, but uh, some may translate this as uh, your first love, and this has the, this translation has it as you abandoned the love you had at first. And it, it, again, uh, John, I keep wanting to say Paul, and I don't know why my brain's just there, but uh, John, uh, writing this letter, it doesn't give us a lot of details on the specific church. There's going to be some other churches we'll talk in weeks later that get a lot more in their section than this one. Uh, but I think I do wonder, in keeping it in the context where we hear these words of your works and your toils and your patient endurance, uh, sometimes we get so busy doing things. And again, speaking not only to the historical context, but to the context that is reading this today, um, I do think we can get so busy doing things and doing right things and good things and healthy things, uh, but we can abandon the love that, and really I think this, even though it is a noun grammatically, it becomes a verb, an action, um, that the love we had at first, it is something that, that motivates, that empowers us, that encourages and strengthens us. And for some reason, this church in Ephesus has abandoned, and the, other, the language of abandonment is not just kind of like forgetting it or... Um, you know, like you lose your key sometimes, like you don't mean to, but this language of abandonment really is intentional, um, that they have kind of turned away from it. And so again, I'm not a hundred percent sure what's all going on here. I know I had to write a Spross paper on this and so I'm really hoping he doesn't see this video. Um, cause I did write a paper specifically on these seven churches. Fired. Yeah. We're I'll all get, fired. If I'll Dan Spross watches any of this, we're all fired, <laughs> we're all fired. from everything. All fired. Uh, um, but, um, but there is, I think what John is trying to communicate or Christ is communicating in this revelation to John, um, and then to the churches is that, um, Things can happen in our lives that distract us. Yeah. And the call for us Christians is to be vigilant. And as uh, Pastor Mike was talking about, it, we are shown that love first. And when we're a baby or a child, we just kind of respond like a baby or a child, where we just know how to love kind of really ourselves and take care of ourselves and then also maybe love the parent. But we're called to mature and to grow. And if ever we get out of alignment, we are called to repent, which is that next verse that I love it. Remember... Um, yeah, from where you have fallen, repent. And actually, I think he says it again. Yes. And if you don't repent, these are the consequences. But there is a turning that needs to happen. Yeah. Um, and not that they've completely abandoned the call of Christ or even the work of the church. But sometimes we don't have to be completely turned around to need to repent. Sometimes we just may need just a little bit of realignment. Yeah. And you, you brought up some words that are I think we need to pursue a little bit more. So you said maturing earlier. And also... This initial question, again, people come to this, they've got different translations of the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, again, when I was first preparing this, I was using a translation that says first love. And mm -hmm. then when I was actually getting closer to today and putting the show notes really together, the one says love at first. And I realized so many people may look at that and if it just says first love, they kind of reduce this down to like, 
I don't know, maybe a high school age romance or yeah, something like so that. Yeah, so ooey gooey. Yeah, yeah. So where it's where it's ooey gooey, and they they might read that and say, so I need to kind of go back to that state. Is that what? No. Really what I'm asking here is <laughs> is where does maturity come into this whole idea of first love? What does that look like? And right. Well, and I think also looking at the word love itself used in in this particular passage, it is the word agape, and that is the God love, the perfect love, the. Uh, not to to borrow a phrase from Dr. Hoskins, not unconditional love, but unfailing love. Uh, this is the love that endures. This is the love that is patient. This is the love that toils. Uh, to also use the language that that John is using in part of his Thanksgiving for this church. And so I think um, it, it is it is a mature love. It is a complex love. Um, and it is a love that motivates people to do more and beyond than, than what the world says is required. And so, no, this is not a newbie gooey love. This is not your first love as in like the first cute boy you saw or girl or whatever to whoever's listening to this. But it, it is that it is a passion, but not a human passion. Since we are talking about the hedonist and, and the Nicolaitans, uh, this is not a, a physical passion. This is the motivation, the encouragement, and the strength, and the power um, kind of love. And so it is mature love because so it's, it's... it is a love that has graduated from the ooey-gooey stage. Yes. So, you, so you should not... It's not that... Jesus is not your boyfriend kind of love. Yeah, it's this not... Is, yeah, that, that's really... And, and that, that was a big thing when I was a teenager, so I may be speaking to above some people's... Not above people's heads, but out of people's context, so I don't it's know. It's still a big thing. Oh, is it still big? Okay. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, there was this trend of like, Jesus is my best friend, and he is your friend. And he does... He is the lover of your soul and he is uh there's language of, of him being a husband unto the church so i'm not trying to diminish those analogies but they are analogies um and there's something more and actually what it is supposed in those analogies it is supposed to be elevating us not de-elevating christ right right, right. and there, that's a very important thing to add there and so many times the reason why i wanted us to drive this point home is you <laughs> you find people he will say, well, if you don't have the ooey gooey side of it, then you've lost the first love. Oh, oh yes. Oh no. And this is, this is awful. That, I think that because we do see there's something that happens many times when we're first saved where there's this emotional response and we grieve when we lose, lose that emotional response. And we are emotional creatures, so I'm not discounting our emotions either. But to say that all Christ did was to come and to die, to suffer and to die and go to Hades just so we could have a feeling, that is... Uh, it is awful, but to say it that is incomplete. It it's is hedonistic. Incomplete. It is hedonistic. It is he yeah. And, and so Christ yeah. calls us, yes, to have the emotions, yes, to work through emotions of whether it is extreme happiness or extreme sadness, to have those and to feel those, but to know that love and that endurance and that toil transcends sure. those emotions. Sure, uh, Pastor Mike, who is the standard for this love? We spent a lot of time on that, so. Tell us who that standard is. And well, Christ Jesus is that standard for the love. And, you know, obviously we see Christ going to the cross uh, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. So you, you not only have Christ Jesus going and dying on the cross and being obedient to the Father in love, but literally suffering for all uh, humankind beyond, you know, what many of us could imagine. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is God the Father who suffers with that, sending His Son. God the Son obviously suffers. This is a love that brings us in right relationship. And that's not just, you know, I think a pastor man that said it great. This is not just for an ooey-gooey feeling. But this is for, to bring, to, for sin to leave out of our lives that we can mature and grow into the love of Christ where we're part of a passion 
for uh, for seeing others uh, being freed from the chains of sin. Sure, and we find that word first, and that is an important aspect of this too. I know we a lot of times we talk about agape, and that's very important to do. I'm not diminishing that, but I also want us to move and look a little bit at the word first, because this almost implies that something else has slipped in. Mm-hmm. Y'all kind of get that vibe when you you read this, like something may have crept in the door. We don't get a specific as to what that may be, but that's a real problem that happens in the church, is it not? Yeah, I I think it's a real problem uh, in that day. And and so like Amanda was talking about, or someone, uh, maybe it was you, Dylan, about the tree uh, of life and that language in there. But understand that you got so many different cultures and and gods being worshipped in Ephesus. Uh, Archaeologists tell us that on the back of some of their coins was a tree. And so there's people there worshipping nature. And so uh, even in this language, there's a slippery slope to to see other types of things slipping in. It can really be anything. It could be anything. And, And, yeah, I would just like to say this, that, that, you know, I think there's a slippery slope always in the church that we we love God, we do things out of love for God and for others, and then there's that slippery slope of the pat on the back, or even you know in this case maybe even falling into the slippery slope of enjoying um, calling out the the. Uh, um, false apostles to hurt them, not calling them out. That's, I think that's that's important to do that, but maybe the joy of hurting someone else in that, yeah. and that is the fallen uh, human being. Sure, and one of the things that we find is that this love of Christ, it is mature and untainted. And sometimes people, they want to replace their version of love with Christ's love, or maybe I phrased that backwards. They want to replace Christ's love with their version of love. Mm-hmm. And instead of doing Christ's love, they kind of say that with their mouth, but they're really doing what they, they want it to be. Um, but Pastor Mike, finish off some thoughts with, you know, what what is the difference between love and kindness? Love can be kind, love can be patient, but is love just the exact same thing as kindness? No, it's not. And, and I think, you know, a mature love always seems what is best for the other. And so sometimes, even in this, we see Jesus calling them out on what they're, you know, you're, you know, you've abandoned your first love. No one wants to be called out and chastised by Christ. We want to be obedient and in right alignment, and he's saying, repent. Um, you know, you're wrong. And we'll see that even uh, more severe on some of the other churches. But absolutely, kindness, you know, love can be kind. There's no doubt. But love and kindness are not the same thing. And some situations call to be uh, call for us to be unkind sure and, and that's true if you're actually loving people Abs- absolutely all right so we've come to this and we we've learned a little bit about love and we we find that really we are commanded to return to that first love if we have fallen away from it again this is not the same charges brought against all the churches this is just the the kind of chastising this particular church is getting the others will get something different um but pastor amanda Another question that people might have, so they say, okay, so it's supposed to be Christ's thing, but what if I feel I'm different, skilled in different things? A question people might have is, do all Christians have the same love at first, or is that something which is experienced differently? Well, I I think that, um, yeah, in in this conversation, in this verse where it says the love you had at first, I, I think we all have the same object of our love, and we are 
the object of the same kind of love from Christ and to Christ. Um, but how we experience that love and maybe express that love, obviously, is going to be different. And, and um, I reference in our our, um, our uh, episode prep about um, there's a passage where it says uh, those who are forgiven much will love much, and those who are forgiven little will, will uh, yeah, who are forgiven little will love little. And, and I think um, in that context. Jesus is saying and really reminding the people in the crowds because it is once again the religious leaders who were kind of against him in that and he is showing uh, because of where we are in our lives we, we may understand and return that love of God differently and like you said we're all called to different things we believe uh, in the church of the Nazarene in many denominations we believe in the ministry of all believers but not everyone's called to be a pastor um, so we how we express that love is going to be differently or it's going to be different, how we express it might be differently expressed. But in all of those things, in, in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves or our temperament or our emotions or how we express those emotions will definitely be different um, uh, regardless. But the object. The object of the love and the call the of that kind of love is the same. So, I mean, there are things that are not love that we cannot call. We can't call some things love just because, you know, I'm built that way or I think that way. No, there's something higher. And as Pastor Mike articulated, that love is Christ. And so if it's anything against that character, the nature, the image of Christ, then we know it is not truly love. Well, th this really is, finally, we got to critical thinking on our program. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I hope anyway. Um, again, we might all get lessers of... of Forced resignation later. Um, but anyways, to it is an adult thing to make this distinction that we might experience what we are called to do differently, but the object of our love mm -hmm. and the love which has come to us, you know, to and from Christ, that love that Christ had for us is the same and it is applicable to, to all. However, when we come to the church, we do find that we have different skills, but that doesn't mean that these skills are the same thing as they love. We might right. be called to say you are to be a pastor. Maybe you're a Sunday school teacher. You know, you might look at this and say, well, I was teaching Sunday school when I first came to this church 15 years ago, and I've got to return to that love, but now that Sunday school position is not there or something like that. They're like, well, I can't really return to the flesh love. The adult distinction says it wasn't actually doing something like teaching Sunday school or really enjoying this piece of music or whatever. The love was your relationship with Christ that was going on there. It was the love of Christ that was active in your life. And so it's an adult thing to make a distinction between the way those things manifest in the world around us and what the actual object driving them is. Well, I, I just had something to add on, and this may seem like a bunny trail, but often when we talk about love, and we were talking earlier about the difference between love and kindness, we often um, differentiate some of Jesus's actions. We compare these, not extremes, but like Jesus driving out the, the money changers and uh, flipping over tables and this very unkind love. And then we compare it maybe something to like Jesus and the woman at the well and this this uh, vulnerability and Jesus sitting down and really having a sweet conversation, though there are some harsh things that are even brought <laughs> out there, in that yeah. conversation. But we often compare those kind of extremes. But I think also a comparison we can make in, in love and what mature love does is where we see Jesus at Lazarus' death. Oh, sure, and yeah. the way he interacts with Martha and Mary. For Martha, he gives this great explanation when she says, I, if you were here, the one you loved wouldn't have died. And he gives us basically a very short but great theological answer of the resurrection. And then Mary comes and almost gives the exact same question. And Jesus just cries with her. 
And so I think mature love doesn't just isn't just able to differentiate when it's the time to uh, get up and be loud and when is the time to sit down and be quiet. But good mature love knows how to act. And it knows, when. for your example, you're talking about maybe when you first became a Christian, you were a Sunday school teacher, now you're not, and you're worried, what does that mean? Uh, mature love will just love. And it will change day by day, week by week, um, definitely year by year. And, and I can attest, the way I thought my life was going to go and the ministry I thought I was going to be doing was not this. <laughs> I did. If you asked me even five years ago as a college student, would you be a pastor at, in Nashville five years later? I'd be like, no, of course well, not. I thought you were going to say when you said this for a second, oh. <laughs> just the studio around us, the, the cords everywhere, the, yes, the no, purgatory. This is definitely the unimaginable. This, yeah, this, this is unimaginable. This is quite un, but But... Love, the call to love, has not changed. Right, the situation right. has changed. The people have changed. Uh, but the call to love and to love in that way that we love at first, that, that passion and that conviction uh, has not changed. Yeah. And, you know, every situation and opportunity that love finds itself in is based on relationship. And, and thank God that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us uh, just as she talked about Martha and Mary getting really a little bit different response from Jesus, you see that th there is that knowing of Christ. And, it, you know, this letter starts out with Christ knows your deeds. And that's in the very strong grammar and language. Uh, it's in that perfect tense. It says God knows us inside and out. And uh, he knows our motives in those things. It's hard for us to understand others' motives. We can understand their actions. But it, it is very important, though, to know that the Holy Spirit helps guide us in that love and convicts us when we're wrong. Sure. And so moving, trying to just wrap up a lot of our thoughts here. The, one of the things that is addressed here is that they're getting out heretics. And that's a good thing. They have this to their credit. <laughs> Credit means something we're giving you. So they're getting praise for this. And what we find here is that whenever you actually are living a holy life, holy influence, which is from the power of the Holy Spirit, is quickened by the Holy Spirit, it begins in the individuals in the church. And if we want to have a holy influence around us, we want to have a holy surrounding, we want the church culture to be holy, well, the individuals, the members in the church, they have to be make living holy lives. So therefore, it is very important that we look at ourselves and we realize the importance of living holy lives. And one of the things which often happens, and it does begin with individuals and then it starts to spread out, is heresy. And heresies, they start with saying things like, did God really say that? And then they usually end with saying, well, I cannot be wrong in my interpretation of things. I cannot be wrong in my theology because what I'm doing feels right and I'm convicted that it's right. A lot of people have been convicted sincerely of wicked things that are heresy. They start off saying, did God really say that? Is that really what it meant? And then they end up saying, I can't be wrong. So Anthony, how do we make sure that we are living holy lives and we're not tolerating heresy? Well, there are many answers to that, but the answer that we find in our scripture today is to test the ones who claim to be sent. And so uh, the literal words are uh, to say that, you know, you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. Yeah. Uh, and this is how they have been fighting uh, wrong teachings and things of that nature. Um, to be an apostle, the, if you break down the word, it's just uh, to be one who is sent. And yeah, we, so... We don't use the word apostle a lot. So 
Who, who would apostles be, really, Anthony? Uh, the apostles are those who claim to be sent by God. It's a uh, pretty it is, basic, I think. <laughs> it does seem pretty basic, and I'm not trying to just interrupt and heckle Anthony, but I want us to realize this word does apply to people today. Absolutely. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to get at. I mean, if someone comes wanting to teach in Sunday school or preach at your church, I hope to God that the first criteria that you have for them is whether or not they are sent by God. Uh, because if they're not coming in the name of God to teach or preach in your church, then they really have no business teaching or preaching anything. And if they are coming in the name of God, then they need to be tested. And so... Um, this passage is not explicit on how we should be testing. But as Pastor Amanda politely pointed out to me uh, in the pre-show talk, um, that's a facetious joke, but um, our standard is Christ. And our testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ is the scriptures. And so we weigh people by uh, what Christ has showed us about God and whether or not what they have come to teach and preach and how they live is consistent with that testimony. Sure. Pastor Mike. I think St. Teresa of Avila, you know, said, you know, if the whole world should go after a, a you know, a, a revelation that contradicts uh, the scriptures, then she would even the slightest. all the more. Yeah, she would, she would go against that. Now we have to take uh, the scriptures in the context of what they're, what's being written as well. Uh, but, you know, I think we have to do that with uh, TV preachers and even podcasts such as this. Yep. We encourage you to, you know, what's being said and taught just by people. Don't just take it uh, as, okay, that's it. You know, they, you know, they have letters behind their name or they're on TV or on the Internet. No, you need to check that out with the Scriptures. Yeah, do. Yeah, don't just take it because we're over here saying it. Um, if I come over here telling you, you know, it's time to get the snakes out, um, we're going to be handling some. You know, if I pull any stunt of any of the her heretics of old, you know, send, send maybe real pitchforks, um, <laughs> not the ones that go to patreon.com slash kingdom of the logos. But, Dad, another thing I wanted to, to ask you right before we we'll have our closing thoughts after this. How does one really endure? Furthermore, we look at this text and we see that they have some destructive opposition from within. And this is really where I was going to come back to talk about martyrs in a second. We find so many times there is the most destructive opposition happens within the people of God. Within the people, yes. Yeah, I agree to that. You know, a lot of times our own worst enemy is not outside, but inside our own family, or not even our family, but our, our community of believers. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that I think we have to realize is, and, and you and I were talking in the, in the past about, you know, it come on to me. There was a little bit of me it just felt guilty because when I became a Christian and, and become part of a, a community and church, I, I imagined it's going to be some type of utopia and, and uh, you know, everything's just going to be fine. And I, and I come to find out there's all kinds of adversities and, uh, you know, personalities and conflicts and all that. that, that and heresies. And heresies. <laughs> yeah, and heresies. And, and, you know, I think I, as I have matured, I praise God for each adversity because it makes me stronger it makes me uh it, it transforms me into be being better grounded and so i've come to the place where there are many mysteries and i don't want to focus and start loving the mystery more than i love christ 
And I want to continue to be in that right relationship, yep. but the adversities and everything. So the church, you know, it does. It, it's full of all kinds of personalities and people may not get along, but we can be united in Christ yeah. and we can learn to love one another, seeking the best for one another. And with that being said, there are sometimes, sometimes heresies and heretics that creep in. Doesn't mean we we don't love them. Yeah, we and do love them, but we can we have to stand and do an act of love by correcting those heresies. Yeah, they have to be corrected. And the thing is, is we're not exempt from having this as a problem. The early church had this as a very prevalent problem. And you look at Jesus. You look throughout the Gospels. The greatest opposition he faces is within the house of Israel. Mm-hmm. Like it's not the 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 non believing Gentiles who don't know anything about this God of Israel, but it's people who were supposed to be waiting for the Messiah and by their own confession would be waiting for the Messiah, yet when the begotten Son of God is standing before them, they look at him and say, you, you're Beelzebub. You know, this, this is the sort of thing, this is the adversity that I think you're hinting at that does happen in the church. It, it certainly happens, um, but it is not the end. And there's always hope in Christ Jesus. And we find that when we can unite around orthodoxy, because there will be people who will not want orthodoxy, but when we unite around orthodoxy, the church really does grow. And this is really where the martyrs come in that I was going to talk about earlier, but I'll throw this in real quick. When you look throughout history, whenever the church faced opposition, where the culture around them really wanted to exterminate them, the church has actually flourished if the church was actually able to stand on its feet and center around orthodoxy. And you find, you go and look at the amphitheater. I think all of us here have the movie pass. We go to see movies pretty often. You know, there were versions of that in ancient Rome where they would pay like a, a blanket ticket fee or something and they get to go see so many Christians executed. I don't remember exactly how it worked around the Gaelic pogrom time, but horrible, wicked stuff. But you would find scenarios where they would have like a 12 year old girl who, because she won't go to a house of fornication, she won't give up her, her cleanliness for God, they're going to kill her by putting her on a griddle like you would put food on. And they, they put her on there. They do it this for public entertainment for everyone to watch her be executed. And some of the men who put her on this griddle to kill her, they looked at that and they said, you know, her faith was real. And they, they turned to Christ. They were immediately executed, had their heads chopped off for it. But then you had people in the stands who looked at it and said, you know, there's something to this. And people were going to the church in droves for that. When the world wanted to execute Christians. And if you have not read the diary of, of St. Perpetua, um, Vivia Perpetua, it is a beautiful work. You've got this young girl, young mother, she's sent to the amphitheater to die. And her friends have died. She and this other lady, they're the last two alive. And she goes over and looks at the crowds and asks one of the, the women that's there who has a hairpin. She says, can I have your hairpin? Because I want to look good when I go to see my maker. People saw that testimony where the world wanted to crush the church, and yet people would leave that amphitheater and go be baptized. And what we find is that the true destructive force is whenever the church is divided internally and not centered around orthodoxy. And what we see happening here is a church that has moved away from its first love. They're good at rooting out some heresy, but Christ is trying to get them to unite around what makes the church the church. They've got some good things. They've got some bad things. But if they can get those bad things out and they can get back to their first love, good things are going to happen. So, ladies and gentlemen, final thoughts. What have we learned here? Have we just been on a rambling tirade (laughs) for the last 
while. Well, I, I think to uh, more succinctly say what uh, I was telling Anthony earlier in, in the sh- show prep was that uh, we know what is true not by st- studying the counterfeit, but by studying the authentic. And so to con- to contrast with the, the hedonists or the Nicolaitans, um, we will know who is a good teacher or even just mm. uh, good. Um, we will know what our first love is. We will know what it means to toil and to endure uh, if we study, study what is authentic, and that is Christ. Amen. Any other final thoughts? I find that it's uh, extremely important to uh, understand that, you know, we are not just a community, the church, but we are a family. And that's the language that we use. And so inside families, there are adversities. I I know Amanda has a a sister and a brother very close. Well, they're they're triplets, so (laughs) they're close to the same age. I don't know where this is going, but it sounds like dangerous territory. I I have watched them interact, and they (laughs) they love one another, but they have to overcome personalities and things uh, that are different. I'm sure there's been some knockdown drag outs, Pastor Amanda. But uh, at the end of the day, they continue to grow in their love for one another. And that's what we're called to do as the church. And we don't give up on one another. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Again, we're Kingdom of the Lagos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Download us on iTunes, SoundCloud, CastBox, other various podcasting sites. Check out our website where we've got written articles. If you'd like to donate monetarily, you can do that at patreon.com. So that's Kingdom of the Lagos. And make sure you're part of a local fellowship. With that, God love you and have a blessed day.